Well, this morning, we want to begin the training, Right Thinking Produces Right Actions. This is Christian worldview of organizations. And of course, all of my training is based on timeless universal principles found in scripture. So we want to just begin the first of uh, four major sessions of training this month and next month, we'll be talking about the right worldview. And then uh, in uh, February, March, and April, we'll be taking up successively right thinking, right actions, and right results. Let me just uh, point you to Romans chapter 12, verses one through two real quickly to kind of set up our, our time today. Uh, this is Paul's uh, writing. Uh, to the Roman Christians in, in the first century. He's just argued in the first 11 chapters of the epistle to the Romans, the power of the mercy of God, the incredible gift of salvation, the reality of total depravity and how mankind could never self-save, mankind could never be good enough. The major lesson from the Old Testament was total depravity. If you can't see that, then you won't really understand scripture very well. Paul makes this very clear in Galatians 3. He writes extensively in Galatians 3 and 4 about this particular lesson and how there was nothing wrong with the law. The problem was that mankind is unable to perfectly obey the law. And so therefore, if mankind is ever going to be acceptable with God, it's not going to be based on his own actions. It's going to be based on a gift, the gift of the mercy of God through Christ. So we call that grace. Grace means gift. God has given us the, the privilege of knowing Christ, which means our sin has been imputed to Christ. He pays a penalty that we could not pay. And that was a penalty he did not owe, but he paid it on our behalf. And likewise, he, what's imputed to us is a righteousness we can never earn and a righteousness that he alone could earn. So that's double imputation, and that's the basis for salvation. That's the mercy of God. That, that reality should so grip us that we can do nothing but be servants of the Most High God. We can do nothing but truly worship God. And when you get that, you respond by engaging in the process of being transformed in how you think. So listen to Paul's words in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. He said, therefore, in light of all that I've just summarized for you, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, the mercy to give you salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, even though you deserve nothing but judgment, and God has reached out and extended mercy to us, I urge you, Paul says, to present your bodies, everything about your being, as a living sacrifice. Now, you'll notice the Old Testament sacrifices were not living. They were all killed. We're told to live as a sacrifice. It's not, it's not giving up our life at the end. It's to live here and now as a sacrifice. This is the call of being a Christian, is we have a calling here and now. It's not just a ticket to heaven. So live, live as a living sacrifice. This is your true worship. We think worship today is music. I think that is a very low view of it. I think a more profound view of what real worship is. Worship is learning to live surrendered to the will and ways of God in every area of life. 
And our responsibility to be able to do this comes from the next verse. It is, we need to step up and obey two commands. He says, do not be conformed to this age. Don't think like this age. Don't act like this age. You know, don't agree with this age. Stand alone based on thinking correctly about Christ and then acting correctly about Christ. And we do that by being transformed. This is the second imperative. Don't be like the world. Be different. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can now discern the will of God. So see, if we're going to discern the will of God, we have to be engaged in the word of God that transforms our thinking and enables us to think Christian. Left to ourselves, we will not think Christian. We will think like the world. So we've got to learn to grab a hold of a Christian worldview. So let me just uh, jump in and talk a little bit about some definitions. First, what is a worldview? A worldview is an intellectual construct that answers all of the questions of life based on an overriding hypothesis. And everyone's overriding hypothesis is, who is God? Another way to ask the question is, you know, in the beginning, blank. How would you fill that blank in? You know, what is the starting point? What is the RK? That's the Greek word for starting point. Where do we begin life, thinking, you know, our philosophy, you know, our theology, where does it all begin? And if you are a Christian, it begins with what scripture says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created it all. He starts it all. He's the beginning of all. He's the reason for all. He's the source of all. And ultimately, he's the end of all. You know, he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning, the end, and everything in between. So this is, this is uh, we live in a, a context in which God is fully created and controls everything. He is a sovereign creator. He's the sovereign Lord, and he's a sovereign purpose for everything. So that's a, a profound truth we've got to get really clear on. If we don't get clear on it, we will give way to worldly ways. Worldly thinking denies that God is the sovereign creator and Lord and purpose of his universe. And that's fundamentally the difference. We have a, people that don't think Christian don't have a Christian view of God. So a Christian view of God is based on Christ as Lord, and it's best revealed in the Bible. And the biblical narrative is indeed a meta-narrative, a big story of history. And we have to understand that it's unfolding in time. One of the classic distinctions between Christianity and all other worldviews is Christianity has a very clear meta-narrative. There are, there are other worldviews that have kind of a sort of a meta-narrative, like the Eastern meta-narrative is about re reincarnation, but it's not a profound meta-narrative. It doesn't have a clear beginning, doesn't have a clear end. You see, the Christian meta-narrative is very clear. It has a very clear beginning and a very clear end and a reason for everything in between. It's the only meta-narrative with this kind of clarity. And there are many worldviews that deny any meta-narrative at all. The secular humanist worldview denies meta-narratives. They say there is no meta-narrative. There is no overarching story. There's nothing that connects everything together. Well, the Christian worldview says, no, 
we stand on a meta narrative, a meta narrative revealed in the Word of God. It starts out with creation. God created everything. He is the source of everything. Nothing exists that God has not ordained. Nothing happens that God has, hasn't ordained. Then we have a creation mandate. The purpose for mankind is to be God's agents to extend his rule on this planet. He's chosen mankind to be the superior being, the highest of all beings. And he's chosen mankind then to represent him. We have, we're the only beings of whom it is said we're created in the image of God. There's something of the traits of God in us that give us now the ability to be his ruling agents. We are different from all other animate objects. No animal has the, the standing that human beings have, notwithstanding the atheists today trying to claim that animals are people. That is a error. That is false thinking on the part of the atheists. Christians should be clear on this. And then we have the fall. The fall is what now has infected every human being with a bias to rebellion against God. And with, as soon as the fall happens, God chose to reveal a meta narrative, the meta narrative of redemption. It's given in the Protevangelum of Genesis 3, verse 15. That is history in a re reduced to one verse. It's the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's the seed of, of seed of light and, and, um, and good versus the seed of darkness and evil. So the seed of the kingdom of light versus the seed of the kingdom of darkness. That's the battle. That's the battle since the fall. It will continue until sin and death are finally eradicated. But there's a process go that we're gonna go through. There is first revelation in the Old Testament about the depth of the fall. Mankind at the fall did not know how fallen he was. And so we go through a series of, of experiments or a series of, of examples to illustrate, to convey to man the depth of fallenness. We see mankind left to himself winds up totally rebelling against God. And so God now has a divine reboot called the flood. And that's where he starts all over again now with eight people in the ark. And now will it, what will happen next? Well, we now have that degenerating into the Tower of Babel, which again reveals that in mankind, there's this innate bias to sin. And then even when God gives us a promise we can't really believe the promise. We have to produce some way to try to fulfill the will of God in our own ways. And so we produce an Ishmael. That's a very typical pattern of fallen mankind is we may know something of the will of God, but we wind up trying to do it according to our ways. And then we have the Old Testament law, which is so simple. God said, if you'll just obey the law, you'll be my people and I'll be your God. And the Israelites said, we'll do it. And then the Israelites fell on their face miserably. And the point is, what is in them is in us. So we can't say we would do it different. We would, if we were them, we would have done the same thing they did. And that means, means that no human being, no matter who you are, no matter how good you think you are, you will never be good enough because sin is deep in us. And it's so deep, we can never perfectly obey the law. So during this Old Testament time, you know, this was an opportunity for among the people of the world for God to have one people who would be his called out people. A called out people is an ecclesia. Ek means out of and kaleo means call. So the Greek word ecclesia is a combination of those two words. 
It means a called out people who are to be his ruling agents, his representatives. You see, in a fallen state, God was trying to express now his rulership through his ecclesia, but Israel failed miserably because they were relying on their own strength, their own potency to be able to do it, and that could never, never work. So that sets up a need. The need is mankind desperately needs to be empowered, and they need someone to make them righteous before God, and that is the work of Christ. He comes in his first advent to do this work, to die on the cross. That was his destiny, and then his legacy was to build his ecclesia, and that's what's going to happen in this new age. And so we have a discipleship mandate, which now is about recognizing who the Holy Spirit is now beginning to empower, who is being regenerated and now dwelt by the Holy Spirit and empowered to be part of now the New Testament ecclesia. The New Testament ecclesia is very different from the old because no longer are we basing, you know, what we do on our own potency. We are living out of divine potency. Without divine potency, fallen mankind can never be God's ecclesia. So now for the first time, we have an ecclesia that can truly begin to do what we were put here to do in the first place, which is to rule. You see, the discipleship mandate, which is commonly called the Great Commission, is one of the great misunderstandings, I think, of Christianity in the last three to 400 years. We, we fail to see the connection between that mandate and the creation mandate. The creation mandate is the greatest of all mandates. It should be called the Great Commission. The discipleship mandate is only necessary because of sin. And it gives us now the power of God to, at work in us to overcome the fallenness of mankind, to enable mankind to obey the creation mandate, the original mandate, the true Great Commission in the first place. So this is, this is an incredible thing when you see how this is playing out. Sadly, most people don't see this. They have been jaundiced by an incorrect view of the discipleship mandate. And when you get focused on just your perception about getting everybody, quote, saved and getting them a ticket to heaven, and you don't realize that we're here to rule, then what happens is you don't rule and you don't really do what God's put you here to do. You wind up doing your will according to your ways, and that will not get blessed. So we're at a time when we've got to get back to the basics. We have the power for the first time to truly live out the reality of being the God's ruling agents. And we need to do that faithfully. And we need to know as we do that, that will bear witness of Christ. That will be salt and light to the world. That will draw men to Christ. This is the proper way of evangelism is ruling well. If you don't rule well, you will never be a really excellent evangelist. If you have a heart to be salt and light to people, then you need to obey the creation mandate well. That's the challenge for all of us. The end will be the second advent. That's when all of this meta-narrative begins to come together. Sin and death will be defeated completely. At the first advent, the basis for their judgment is established. The cross laid the foundation for the end of sin and death. The second advent is when now the execution of the sentence upon sin and death is, will be consummated and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. We'll have a final judgment for both, you know, for everyone. 
those who uh, those who have know the Lord and those who don't know the Lord. Those who don't know the Lord will pass into the lake of fire along with sin and death. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, they're the ones who truly knew the Lord. They will then move into the new creation with the Lord and they will be with the Lord. And by the way, it appears that the Lord will be on the new earth, not in heaven. And so the idea of going to heaven is probably not a good way to think about eternity and where we will spend it. So this is the meta narrative. It's the story. Everything in life fits into the story if you have the grace to see it. And it's not necessarily easy to see. You have to really work at humbling yourself to play your role in the meta narrative and know that no matter how how the role may look to you, how insignificant it may look to you, it still counts in the kingdom. It counts to God. And that's what really matters. So why do people and organizations exist? Let me just summarize this for you one more time to stress this. We exist, people and organizations, for one purpose. And that purpose is to obey the creation mandate. There is no other reason for our existence other than to be God's ruling agents. And we must be very vigilant about learning how to do that. That causes us to grow up and mature in Christ to be able to do that. We have to remember we're in a fallen world and the protevangelum tells us that there is a great war going on, whether you like it or not. And that great war has to do with now the war of the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. And in the end, the kingdom of light will prevail. That's what Genesis 3.15 assures us of. Now, given this salvific work of Jesus, let's talk about building now organizations. How do we do that really well? We need to learn to build Beyond Babel. Beyond Babel is a Christian view of building organizations. So here's the Beyond Babel model. Most of you are probably familiar with it. And Beyond Babel is all about thinking first and foremost Christian. The foundation of the model is you have to think Christian. If you don't think Christian, you will never build an excellent organization. Then you have to have an equally yoked leadership team who obviously all the leaders have to think Christian and have to be called to work together, have a common vision, have C4 to do what they're called to do. That's the biblical principle for how to find what you are called to do is the C4 principle. They should be working in their C4 and now they come together to now fulfill what God has called them to do. So they discern that through strategic thinking. And as they think strategically, they're discerning the will of God. What is this organization? What is it called to do in the meta narrative? And then it began to think about, well, how do we do that? How do we execute with excellence? How do we build you know, the right culture and have the right people, have the right value proposition, the right systems, the right resources, the right customer service? All of that has to be built on the right handbook. So it pulls us back into a really strong, robust view of Christianity based on the word of God. And finally, the validation that we have done this well is never ourselves. We can never boast about how great we are. We always have to humbly surrender to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through our, those that we serve. And the Holy Spirit will verify two things. One is, are we really doing what we should be doing? Is our strategic plan on point? And number two, are we really executing with excellence? So that's what customer validation alone can give you. You can never tell yourself that. You will probably self-deceive in a heartbeat if you think you can self-analyze. So this is the model. 
This is about thinking Christian about building organizations. Now, let me talk about one specific aspect of learning to think Christian that we all have to master. If we don't master this, then we will never think Christian well. We will never live Christian well. This is a recognizing that we have a tension between the will of man and the ways of and, and the uh, will of man and the way of, will of God and the ways of man and the ways of God. There's a natural tension there. We want to default to living according to our will and our ways. Everybody wants to do that because we come into the world fallen human beings, deeply fallen, so fallen we can never obey God good enough to be acceptable, which is why we have to have a savior. We cannot self-save. So this fallen state is totally depraved. Does that mean man is as bad as he could be? No, total depravity doesn't mean utter depravity. Utter depravity would mean you were absolutely as bad as you could be. If mankind was utterly depraved, mankind would not even exist. Mankind would have long ago wiped out each other. There would be no one left. But the fact that mankind still exists means there's a level of common grace at work to enable fallen man to at least survive and to be able to function at some level. So we at least can grow the population and on some level do something of the creation mandate, although we're not doing it profoundly, we're not doing it well, we are surviving. I think that's about all you can say is we are surviving in the state. Ultimately, the state that we're in, our fallen state, will lead to eternal death unless we are redeemed. That is the only way out. So the fallen state is a hopeless state. Now, very quickly, virtually everyone realizes trying to do their will according to their ways is not going to work. So we've got to figure out how do we work in God's universe where our will and our ways don't work. They don't get supported by anything. Well, one of the first ways that we began to function, you know, and survive in God's universe is we move into trying to do our will according to God's ways. We have some grace, some common grace to adopt some of God's principles and live by those principles. And that enables us to survive, even though our will is our main agenda, and that will get judged. You know, anything short of God's will and God's ways will get judged. So this will get judged. An example of this is the Tower of Babel. You can see that this group of people came together to build a project and their agenda was self-glory. That was their will, self-glory. They stole principles from God to do their will. They, it was a real estate project they were doing, building a tower up to heaven to make a name for themselves. So they had, to, they had to know something about real estate, find the right location. They had to know something about construction. How do you build a building in a, in a fallen world where there's a lot of weather issues? And you know, prior to the flood, there really wasn't any rain, but now we got rain. So it's gotta be waterproof. You've gotta deal with wind. You gotta deal with earthquakes. You gotta deal with all kinds of things. And so they realized they had to make brick. Well, brick is something that God has put in his universe for mankind to use as a building material. You can't just randomly do whatever you want to do to build something. If you don't build something with regular bricks, then it's going to be really hard. So using God's ways of building, of construction, which included the right mortar that would be waterproof, the right material, bricks, the right location, and it included teamwork submission to authority, unity of vision, basically, you know, the ability to function as a team. That is a 
system that God has set in place. Those are his rules. You know, our rules lead to only chaos, anarchy, randomness. His rules lead to order, kingdom order, and functionality and efficiency, effectiveness. So they're adopting God's rules here through common grace to do their will. And in the end, and we don't know how long they they went along on this project. It may have been decades, maybe hundreds of years. We don't know that. But in the end, he got judged because God does not support mankind doing his will, even when mankind's using God's ways. And the other, the other uh, obviously opposite uh, paradigm of this, which is also wrong, is when we discern something of the will of God, but we try to do it according to the ways of man. And we illustrated that. I gave you an illustration about, uh, about promise, how Abraham was given a promise. That was the will of God. It's the Abrahamic promise. That was an expression of the will of God. He had revelation on what God was going to do. And then he did not have faith to believe God. So he tried to do his, to fulfill that promise according to his ways. And so he winds up producing an Ishmael. And Ishmael, even today, is continuing to plague us. Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations. And we know the center of conflict on this planet is today. Israel, the people of God, and the Arab nations. It is Isaac, okay, and Ishmael, as it has been from the beginning. And so this has been around a long, long time. This is a great picture of that. Another picture is Uzzah and the ark. David was trying to move the ark from where it was. It was in the home of a man, uh, and it had been delivered back by the Philistines who had stolen it, and they had delivered it back to Israel because the ark caused them so much trouble. And the way they sent it back is they sent it back on a cart. And it was very interesting. They, the the cat, two cows that they picked to pull the cart, uh, they were going to test God and see if if they were really correct in their understanding that that this this ark was really a representation of the true God and all the plagues and difficulties they were having by having this ark, they had it illegally. And they thought that, well, we're going to test and see if our perception is right. We're going to build, we're going to get two calves that have never been tamed and we're going to hook them up to this cart and we'll see what happens. Well, as soon as they released those two cows, they went straight back to Israel, did not waver one side or the other straight. And then the, the, basically the Philistines realized, well, this, this really, this is the God of heaven. We had a revelation that the God of heaven was the God that was plaguing them because of their sin. Now, did they repent? As far as I know, they did not. They did not repent, which is such a picture of what's in all of us. So the cart is, goes to Israel. It's goes to a particular place and it's, it's, uh, it's housed there at the home. Of, a, of an Israelite citizen there for a number of months and blesses everyone. It's a great blessing now that it's back in Israel. It's the Lord's favor. David, knowing that the ark belonged in the tabernacle in Jerusalem, wanted to take it to Jerusalem. So what he did was he adopted the ways of the world in transporting the ark. That is a cart. Now we think, well, that's a great way to transport it. The cart was not the prescribed way. You see, the Israelites had a prescribed way given in the law of how to transport the ark. It was by poles on shoulders of Levites. That's what was supposed to be happening. Well, since David 
adopted a way of the world and not the way of God revealed in scripture, then God, God judged it. And the way he judged it, he didn't judge it every, he doesn't judge everyone involved with this. He just picked one, which that's so typical of God, just like he did with the Tower of Babel. He picked one problem, a project to judge the whole world. Well, likewise, he's going to pick one man to show, to illustrate that they were out of order, that they were trying to do their will, God's will, according to their ways. The ark is going along on the cart. There's a man named Uzzah walking beside him. The cart kind of shudders. Now, you remember the feet of the ark are going to be, be metal rings because they were designed for poles. So they would be a little slippery. And so the ark begins to move a little bit. So Uzzah sees the ark moving on the cart. He's concerned the ark's going to fall off, which seemed very benevolent. So he reaches up to steady the ark. As soon as he done, did, God struck him dead. Now that really angered David, you know, to do that. And obviously stopped everything in their tracks. And I think David, David later realized his error, that he had tried to do God's will according to his own ways, according to the ways of the world, which we're told we're not to think like the world. That's what Romans 12, 2 says. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not think like the world. Do not function like the world. Do not act like the world. Do not live like the world. But he was doing that. And so this is an example, again, of trying to do God's will, but using man's ways. And there's some common grace to do that, but it gets judged. The only way to build anything was a family or an organization, including a local church, including government agencies, any organization, anytime two or more people have come together to fulfill a vision that they have, you have an organization and you must build it singularly based on God's will and God's ways. That is the only way to properly build. Any other way is going to, at some point, wind up in judgment. And that's a scary thought. I think most of us don't want to build something that's going to get judged. We want to build something that truly pleases the Lord, that honors the Lord, that reflects his will and reflects his will done, his ways. And Noah's Ark is probably the best example of that that I can think of. Noah lived at a time when there was no such thing as rain. The, the ground was watered by dew. People hadn't seen rain. And he starts building this thing called an ark. They didn't know what an ark was, much less how to build it. And God, get, God spends a 100 years working with eight people to help them know how to build it and guide them into building it. And you can imagine all the ridicule and all the joking that went on about what Noah's folly. That's probably what it was called, something like Noah's folly. Like, you're an idiot. What are you doing? What are you building that for? I mean, you're so far away from any body of water. What do you mean? What's an ark? What's, why do you need a boat? I mean, it's crazy. It all looked crazy. But sometimes God's will does look crazy. And sometimes God's ways look crazy. But in the end, it's the only thing that will get blessed. So if we're going to learn to live truly Christian, think Christian, we have to learn to build as God builds. His will done his ways. And when we do that, that leads to blessing. May the Lord give us grace to learn how to live this way. His will done his ways in Jesus' name. Amen.